Please open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're in the family tree series. We talked about the root system, that is, biblical manhood and womanhood. And then we talked about the trunk, a couple of weeks on marriage. And now we're at the limbs, parenting. We're going to spend a couple of weeks in this that I trust will be helpful and encouraging to you. Here's our text, Deuteronomy 6, beginning with verse 1. Love the Lord, I mean, I'm sorry, huh? These are the commands, great start, right? These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel. Be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and to give us the land that he promised an oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all the law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Our children and our grandchildren are terribly inquisitive, aren't they? We have seven grandkids. When we were at Lake Erie a couple of weeks ago, we had two of them with us, Jada three and Graham five. Graham is up by six every morning, and he does not ease into the day. From the time his feet hit the ground, he starts talking, asking questions. His brain never stops. His mouth rarely does. Kids ask these ridiculous questions, frustrating questions like, why is the sky blue? Where does the sky end? What are shadows made of? Oh, uh, how can fish breathe underwater? They stump us a lot. There are a lot of questions that kids ask. But there's no more important question than the one posed in our text today, that a son asks his father, what is the meaning, it's verse 20, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? 
Now your son, your daughter, your grandchild, your child, your nieces and nephews, they're not going to talk like that. But that question is going to rise from their heart, at least, if not their lips. And the question, paraphrased, is this. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, why do we believe in God? Why do we go to church every week? Why, 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 why is all this so important? That's the beating question always of every generation who has watched a previous generation before them give their lives to God. Today, in this arena of faith, there are a lot of things we could talk about regarding parenting. We'll have more to say next week. But of, of all the concerns we have about our children, nothing is more important than this one thing. Are you passing along to the next generation the reality of the living God and the truth of his son, Jesus Christ? Are you living in that way that people want that? I don't know how many grandmas and grandpas we have here today. What about, I didn't ask any of you to do this, so this is on a whim. How about 12 or 15 of you just come up front here? I just want to see some of you up here. Just don't be, don't be shy. Come on up. Come on, Chris. You're right here. Susan, you can come too. Uh, others, come on up here. Christina, yeah, thank you. Yeah, come on up. Is that Susan? Susan's another grandma. Have some parents come up here, please. These are all grandparents. Come on, parents, come on. I want, I want about 15 of you up here. I'm going to ask you to do something, but it's not too strange. Not, not, not too strange, okay? All right, Susan. Now take your shoes off. Okay, take your shoes off, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really. I hope you don't have diseases or anything. <laughs> All right. And then I want you to put them on the stage here, please. Okay, thanks. You can get them later, maybe. <laughs> Someone might swap them out for something better. I don't know. Thank you. Go have a seat. Yeah. Yeah, you can sit down. No, no, no. Keep your shoes here. Yeah. Now, my question for us all today is what kind of shoes are you leaving your kids and grandkids, your nieces and nephews to fill? Now, you may be so passionate about your son, your daughter getting a scholarship to get a good degree so they can be functioning adults and have the best job they can or, or be successful in athletics or music or whatever it is, and there's good to have those dreams for your kids and encourage them, and I'm not saying we should all fall short of that, but there's nothing more important than at the end of the day, what they, what they really live out is the same love for Christ that you have. Is it the kind of life that you're living before them, that all of us are living, that our children would want to? Is God become that real to them? Because one of these days, your shoes are going to be empty, and they're going to be called to fill them. Paul in the New Testament said, to fit, that we are to fit our feet with the gospel, with the good news of Christ. Are your shoes being filled that way for the sake of your children? Moses wrote the words in our text today. Verses 4 and 5 are most significant as far as the Israelite community was concerned. You notice them there. Here it is again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, the Hebrews called that the Shema, which means hearing. comes from that first word in the text, hear, O Israel. When we were in Jerusalem, I think I've told you this before a couple years ago, but when we were in, in Jerusalem a few years ago, we bought a mezuzah. A mezuzah looks like this. A Jewish home would put it on their door frame. And in our mezuzah, there is a, a piece of paper rolled up, and it has these verses, four and five, the Shema. Now, it's slanted because there was a, a disagreement on how it should be put. It's supposed to be slanted. I'm a terrible handyman, but this is on purpose. Uh, at first, they were, they, were, they were put on doorposts hor- um, horizontally because the scrolls were stored in horizontal uh, like, 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 uh, niches in the wall. But there was a rabbi who said, well, our attention ought to be given to God alone. So they compromised and slanted it uh, because there's a connection with this verse between God and then how we are to live. And so a good Jew would walk out of the door and tap that with his hand as a reminder that wherever he went that day, the truth that God is one God and they're to love him with all heart, mind, and strength, all his being would be with him wherever he went. That's what this meant to the Jew. Now, obviously, what can happen, you just hit that thing, you go out and you don't give another thought about it. Just like going to church, you put in the hour, you walk out like you're tapping a mezuzah, and you never give another, another thought to it. But that's not what, of course, God means by this. Of the myriad of information we are passing on to our children, this truth that God is one God, and he is worthy of our whole self, our love, is what we're to pass on. Three ways. First, give them a godly environment. The dominant belief in, G- in Moses' day, of course, was many gods. All the nations had their own gods. They didn't know the true God of, of Israel, the true God of the heavens who made us. They made up their own gods. And so the unusual thing about the Israelite nation is they served only one God. That seemed ridiculous to the, all the other nations, but that's one of the reasons God called these people to be a separate people, not separate, not communicate with anybody, but be a nation that was devoted to this one God. And everywhere the Jews went, they taught that by their lives, and they were, they were to live it with. well. Now, in our, in our culture today, we are still a culture of many gods. Uh, even those who believe there is one God who has made us, we sort of construct him by our own design. And that's polytheistic. That's many gods. What if somebody wrote a book about you? And you pick it up and read the book and you say, geez, that's not me. And you talk to a friend. Am I like this? No, that's not you at all. And you're furious. You go to the author and say, why'd you present me like that? I'm not like that. And the author says, well, no, I know you're not, but that's what I would like you to be. Isn't that ridiculous? And yet people do that with God all the time. They, they make him of their own design. This Bible is God's self-revelation. And we don't have the privilege of shaping him like we want to. He's saying to us, look, I'm the only one God. There are many of you, and you are to worship me as I am. You don't get to pick the kind of God you want me to be by your worship. And yet that's our, that's our culture. So... Our responsibility is to know him well and then love him well in every aspect 
of our being, all our lives, the whole environment of our lives. So hero Israel, here for 21st century parent, grandparent, aunts, uncles, people, single people. You single people, you have a great opportunity to bless kids. Bob Boswell has been on our staff almost 40 years. And three of my grandkids call him Uncle Bob because he spoils them. And he's, he loves them. He dotes on them. And if you've ever been around Bob Boswell, he's taught in our family ministry for years and years. When he first was hired here, uh, he was our, our education minister. And when he teaches, he does it up to the hilt. I remember one time he was teaching about Jesus calling the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. He brought a boat into the classroom and all the little kids sit in the boat to talk about Jesus. Do you think they remembered that lesson? I think they probably did because I did and I was just watching Through his life, he's made the Bible come alive. Through his love, he's made God's truth be live and real. And you have a chance to do that too. At bedtime, you know, when you have a chance to read a Bible study story with your kids and pray with your kids before bed, to pray with them at the breakfast table and the next morning before they go to school, praying for all the conversations they're going to have and the, the hard things that's going to that are going to happen that day and the friends are going to be around them and to, for God to protect them and hear you pray for them. My parents did that for me. I mean, my, my parents created an atmosphere where Jesus was real. They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't syrupy, super saccharine Christians, but whatever I saw my dad and mom being at church, they were like that at home. And our table always had people around that they were hosting, people that were new to the church, people coming that were missionaries and preachers who were coming to visit our church. They were at our table. I remember because I spilled iced tea over them all the time. I remember that. I remember my, my mom and dad, they believed in the power of the family table, something that is, has almost disappeared in our culture today. But my dad worked from 4 in the afternoon until 2 a.m. He had a half-hour supper break at 8.30 in the evening. His shop was five, hour, five minutes away. The whistle would blow, and he got home at 8.35, and we were to be at the table at that time. Mom had the hot meal then, and he left at 5 till 9 to go back to work. That was our supper time because Dad believed in the power of the family table and talking about life and praying at that meal. He led the way. We lived in this little bungalow, you know, where my, my room was an attic room upstairs. It had been changed with paneling everywhere and cheap indoor-outdoor carpeting. And uh, the only way to get there was through my mom's closet in her bedroom. And so I'd open her closet. I'd have to go through their bedroom all the time to go to bed. And when I got up, and mom and dad, whenever they, he was home on weekends, I could see them together at the same time because it was a weird work schedule. They were on their knees at their bed praying before they got into bed. I didn't know if all the parents did or not, but that just blazed on my mind. And when I remember when they would make decisions, when, when they would buy a car, they would pray about God's leadership and the right car to buy. They, they prayed about people. They prayed about the world. I mean, that they, they were real. Jesus was a reality in our home. And I'm so, I'm so thankful of that kind of environment. We had that opportunity as well. Because you have an opportunity to invite D group leaders and, and family, family ministry workers over to your house to be part of your kid's life. You know, they had the chance to be the center for their friends to come over and, and be sure the right influences are there. All of that, you know, all of that is about making a difference. It's, it's good to get your kids to church and you need to get them to church. The real atmosphere they're going to learn in your house. 
how you live, how you relate to each other, how you do your life. Give them a godly education as well, not just a godly environment. And, and you know, uh, a part of this is formal education. That's why we have a family ministry. That's why they're in classes this morning. It's a formal education. I believe in that. My college degree really is in Christian education, not in preaching, and don't dare say that figures. <laughs> I got that education degree because I believed so highly in Christian education. And there, there, there are things in education like that that we, that we have, to, have to know. My wife put this, cha this uh, chart together that shows like different ages, like first grade, second grade, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Uh, these are the kinds of things in every category. Here are Bible facts that child should know at that level. There are characteristics of God that they should grasp. And there's Bible memorization that they should have committed to memory by the time they're in sixth grade. Now, you can go online and you can research that yourself. Where should my child be in understanding just basic Bible information? And what is my role? See, what I want us to understand is that the church is here to undergird your child's education in the Lord. We are not responsible for it. You are. Our job is to undergird what you're teaching them at home. So, how's that going for you? And how are you teaching? Now, I'm a big believer that facts, of course, have to be taught. Uh, but, but real teaching, the real teaching of the gospel, the transference of the gospel, doesn't happen simply by facts and information. We can, we can be pretty good at that. It happens, life transformation happens life to life. It's by living it out. That's really how our children are taught. Two things to keep in mind. Two things you must teach. First of all, teach by your life to love God through and through. In other words, in every part of your being. Notice again the text. It says, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So he says, he talks about being in the home and on the road. In other words, to, in our lives, there is no distinction between sacred and secular. If you leave this place today with a certain language about God by your praise, by your honoring God, and you go home, and you, and you treat your wife with disdain, or you're disrespectful toward your husband, or you're always nagging your kids and critical, or you swear about your boss, you cuss your neighbor out, you flip off the driver who cuts you off after you've been in worship, what do you, what do you think your child's going to learn by that? Not that Jesus is real in all parts of life. He's going to learn a compartmentalized Jesus. That here's where we meet Jesus. We leave him. We'll get back next week and meet him again. It's through life, through and through. In bed and getting up. In other words, in your, your entire schedule of life, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. Um, head and hands are mentioned. It's, in other words, what you believe impacts how you live, and what decisions you make. He talks about doorposts. In other words, be sure you take Jesus home with you when you leave today. Make sure he comes there. He's at your table today. He's on the ball field with you. He's in your hobby. Talking, he's talking with your neighbors. 
He's, wherever you are, there he is. You have a sense of his presence. You are the, the best way your child, your grandchild, your neighbor kid is going to learn the reality of God who is living and real. And teach by your life to love God in your community life. I've already touched on it already. But, you know, he, he, the, the whole idea is that our faith is not a private faith. That's a popular notion, that faith is a private thing. Anybody who believes that, you still don't understand the gospel. Our faith is, is personal, but it's to be made public. The gospel is to be communicated and be impactful. Now, the parallel passage to Deuteronomy 6 is chapter 10. Follow along with this. Here, Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to love and serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? For the Lord shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the immigrant and the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are immigrants and aliens, for you yourselves were once aliens in Egypt. In other words, it's not enough for us to just get them to the love of God and love him privately and personally. The gospel gives us a social conscience in every area. When I'm talking about community here, I'm talking about your neighborhood community, your school community, your college campus community, the fraternity, the sorority you're part of, your work community, your department at your work, the school where you teach with other teachers on that team. When, when you are in the hospital and, and, and doing your nursing duties or doctoring duties in the factory, on the assembly line, wherever you are, whatever community you're in, we're teaching our kids by even how we talk about those communities as well as how we behave in those communities. And God is saying here, there ought not be, the, I don't want to see the slightest the, the, the slightest whiff of prejudice or racism or discrimination among you. Don't dare label people. Don't dare talk down about any group of people. Do you forget you were aliens and I had a heart for you and I reached to you and I gave you a place to belong? That's how I want you to live in your multicultural setting. That's what he's saying. What an opportunity we have to teach our kids about the nations of the world and to open our homes to people who are very unlike us, to learn of a different kind of place, a different kind of upbringing, a different kind of mindset even, and to influence everybody we meet about Jesus. Moses is saying, look, talk about this. Uh, and we need to acknowledge, friends, that, you know, you can gain a lot from podcasts, from listening to sermons, and reading your Bible. I mean, there's so much good, and I want to encourage all that. We all should be listening to sermons and reading blogs and reading books and being the Word. But real transformation happens in community. It happens when we're together wrestling with the things of truth, things of God, things of Jesus that we just can't get our head around. And there are other people walking with us and we're communicating. Transformation happens really more by talking than it does by listening. If all we do is listen to information, but we never talk it through out loud, we're not going to be transformed. That's what makes the home and the family so precious. 
is that we get to talk honestly to one another. We get to be real together and let God change us from the inside out. And third, give them a godly example. Give them a godly example. You know, we've heard it said, do as I say, not as I do. Well, how's that play out in life? Now, you may, you may, have, you may have gotten past that in your own home life, and kids do when they grow up, but it basically doesn't work that way. So again, verse 20, Dad, why should I believe in God? Mom, that's your faith. But why should it be my faith? Why, why should I be obeying God? Why should I follow him? You know, it's a different kind of age. And you notice that the answer given in the text is not another command. You could jump to verse 24. That paraphrase says, because God says so. How do you think that's going to play out? Not great. It might for a few people, but not for most people. So when the kid asks, why should we believe in God? What does Moses do? He tells a story. In fact, he tells the gospel story. Not the gospel story that you and I are singing about today, about the cross. But the gospel is told a lot of ways all through the Bible. And the gospel that was available for Moses, to Moses, was the gospel he used to tell his son. So let me tell you, this is why. Do you know your great-grandpa and your great-great-great-grandpa? He lived in Egypt. And it was a terrible life in Egypt. And our family, our ancestors were so beaten down and oppressed. They were slaves. They were treated as non-persons. And you know what happened? God showed up. He saw us. And he did these mighty things. He infested the Egyptians with lice. And the, their cattle got diseased at the word of God. And all the Water in the land turned into blood. And you know what finally happened? What finally happened is that the firstborn of every family in Egypt died on the same night. But God saw us, and he didn't want us to suffer like that. And you know what, you know what your great-great-great-grandpa did? He killed a lamb. Because God told him to kill that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. Because when death angel would come, that death angel would look at that blood and go right over, pass right over that door. And none of us in our families, none of us had to experience death. And you know what happened? Pharaoh, the king, said, get out of here. And they did. They ran for their lives. And God brought us to a new place that all kinds of great food and soil there was nothing like it. Son, daughter, God has been so good to us. That's why, that's why we want you to believe in God. Because no one will ever love you like he's loved you. No one will ever treat you like God loves you. No one has done for you what God has done for us. How can we not thank him with our lives? Now, I doubt anybody in the Old Testament really understood the great significance of that until one day, down by a river, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him. And then he says, ah, look, the Lamb of God. It's not about those, that Lamb's blood on those doorposts. It's about this person, the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sin of the world. God took note of us and he saw our sin. He saw a rebellion. And instead of sending us plagues to destroy us, the plague of his judgment, he says, here's my son whom I love. And he laid down his life for us that we could live forever. Brothers and sisters, these shoes are not going to be filled until your heart is filled with the gospel of Jesus. Has the gospel gripped your heart so much that your marriage, your home, everything about your life, your work relationships, the sports field, the music concerts, the contests have been gripped by the blood of Jesus and changed your life. How are the doorposts of your house going to be known? You know, I'm so moved by people in this church who, who have on their doorposts, love the Lord your God with all you've got. Every week I see Rick and Joe Martin come in and Ken and Susan Links. Those wives have cancer and the doctors have said nothing else. Got a few months. But every week they're in the assembly. They have their scriptures. They're worshiping. You know what they're doing? They're leaving their kids and their grandkids the life of Jesus on their doorposts of their lives. Laura Densler took in four foster kids a couple years ago. Some of you know them. Rose and Danny and Kathy and Josh. Single person. Only thing she knew is she loved kids. She had any money. She just knew she loved kids. She ended up adopting them last August. They're here all the time, learning, growing. She's got her hands full, as you can imagine. What's she doing? Laura, Laura is putting on the doorposts of her life the gospel, loving those kids to him. I know later this year there's fall break, and already the Raiders, uh, the Lubsons, the Gibbs, their whole family is going to Red Sands Reservation to bless people in Arizona on that reservation. What are they doing? They're not just, they're not just going on vacation for a week. They, they, are, they are nailing on the doorposts of their lives the gospel of Jesus for the next generation. On and on I could go. Thank those of you who are expressing that in so many beautiful ways. How about you? What are you doing? See, you won't really, you won't really nail those good things to the doorposts of your life. They won't be all that important until first the blood is on the doorposts of your life. Because it's not until the gospel grips your heart that you care about your shoes being filled, your feet being fitted with the gospel. We're only one generation away from a dead church. And you and I get to make a difference by the children in our lives. So let's do well 
and make the living God a reality. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there is none like you. Forgive us when our life with you has been a mere habit without life or been so relegated to a church community it hasn't filtered into any other community in our life. Forgive us, Father, for a belief that is only intellectual and not transformational. God, please, please remind us, even as we take the emblems a little bit later in this service, what has happened to us because of Jesus. There is none like him. And we thank you for the Lamb of God that was slain, that we may live. And I pray the generation to follow us won't miss him.